0: Today on NAB Digital Next, we're going to take a glimpse into the multiple uncertain futures. I'm Brad Carr from NAB's Innovation and Partnerships team, and our guest is Andy Hines. Andy leads the Foresight program at the University of Houston, and is an acclaimed author and a global leader in Futurist Studies. Andy co-founded the Association of Professional Futurists, and he was previously an in-house corporate futurist at Dow Chemical and Kellogg's. I had a fascinating week in Houston in August doing Andy's professional certificate course and I'm delighted to have him here to share more of his insights. Andy, thank you, and welcome to NAB Digital Next. All right, well, thanks for having me. Andy, let's start with the the natural opening question, but which is at times complex or confusing. What is a futurist? The short answer is that a futurist is somebody who studies change.
1: If the world didn't change, you wouldn't need futurist or somebody to, we, we just would ride it out. However, the world does change, so futurists are, uh, Essentially are about that. A little bit of a longer, uh, more complex uh, definition of that is a futurist is somebody who helps clients work towards the future they want, avoid the futures they don't want, and, and essentially be ready for anything in between.
0: I like that framing. And in the spirit of Fight Club, you outlined to us on the course that the first two rules, if I can prompt you. Futures do not predict the future. Second rule of fight club is the uh
1: Futurists do not predict the future.
0: As you framed, it's identifying the multiple futures and the different drivers that may steer us more towards one or the other and uh, and how we prepare for that. Could I perhaps prompt you a little further about your own background? I, I mentioned at the outset that you've previously been an in-house corporate futurist and, and strategy planner. Mm-hmm. But what got you into this space?
1: Well, like... Almost all of the students that I've talked to in the last ten years have come to the program. We have this moment. We call it the stumble upon, and it's it's really eerie how many times those that that exact phrase stumble upon comes up. And one day I stumbled upon history of the future as an undergraduate selecting courses. I said, "Well, that huh? What, let me try it." And I came into it and just like, voila. Well, you know, there it was. And I think most of us have that kind of a moment where we're just, you know, because we don't we don't grow up hearing about it. So there's no futurism courses in uh, K through 12. So at some point you've just got to hear about it. And when you do, and for those who, I guess, really end up working in it or becoming uh, passionate about it, it's just, we, we just said, aha, all this time. I didn't know, I was, I think it was. they go to law school, and I had changed majors multiple times, and nothing was, you know, quite clicking until <laughs> there, and it just hit.
0: That's an interesting notion of it, of it kind of clicking. And you know, my own sense was, I've often thought about, you know, what are the different scenarios that could play out? What are the ten or twenty or thirty percent probability events that we we don't think are going to happen, but which are material enough for us to be thinking and planning for? Here at NAB, our chief risk officer, Sean Dooley, is very passionate around that same line of thinking of identifying potential scenarios and, and managing our risk accordingly. But what probably struck me in the, the Houston Foresight course was really that you you bring a robust framework to that approach. And a couple of things that, that stood out for me from the course, and I wrote about this on LinkedIn at the time, the notion that you espouse that, that change is slower than you think and also some of the key differences in how futurists and economists might approach different issues. But what do you want to see people get out of the program? Oh, boy, there's so much in there. Uh, well, what I let's start with that. Uh, begin with the
1: uh, end in mind there. We, what do we want people to do? I want people, when they graduate, they come out to a potential client. It could be the job that they started with when, when they joined us. They're still there. They've their goal was to kind of futurize their organization. They could be in a whole new setting. They could be moving into a, a, a brand new um, area. But it's it's to get a question like, how do I, Alice, let's we'll use a current example. We have a client that says, how do I make sense of AI? Local government, yeah. you know, they've set up this new thing, uh, the planning tech, they're calling it the tech hub. And they're going to try to, you know, be, become a, a leading technological force in the future among cities, and they come to ask for help in understanding the future. And I want our students to be able to hear that question, you know, go, okay, I understand what you're asking, and you know, be and then be able to work with that client to actually design a project to answer it. And you know, that may sound simple, but it's not, mm-hmm. right? Now, like you said, we do teach a core methodology. Uh, we're very, you know, we drill it in pretty hard, and even even in the week long, I think by the end you're kind of like, I get all right, enough already, right? But we feel like if once you understand that, like what do you, what do you need to do? What are the basic steps you need to do? And then when you hear a question, you can kind of you, know, you almost your your brain almost starts getting into that space. Of, oh, okay, we'll do a little bit of this here, a little bit of that here. So it's like. As we say, it's like uh, the difference between a chef and a cook, right? Uh, a cook can can do the basic steps and can make the basic dishes, but the chef knows when to add that last little pinch of salt or whatever it might be. I'm not much of a cook myself. But, you know, and that's, the to me, a good futurist knows, I can kind of understand what this is, how can I help this group or who I'm working for? knowing my basic framework but knowing you know how much how much of this spice and how much of that when to cook here when to and that, there is a but there's an art to that that i hope uh, that takes a while to really get good at
0: and i'm glad you mentioned the example of ai uh, in that discussion and and certainly that's something that i've probably reflected on further since doing your your course and if i think in, in particular about the impacts that ai could have on the workforce yeah there's quite a few different scenarios here and I'd like to to perhaps test and gauge your reaction. You know, I think on one hand we see the potential for enormous disruption to the workforce and the displacement of jobs. There are a few different scenarios of how that could play out either in a holistic way across the economy or concentrated in different lines of work. And some of the discussion we start to see people calling out of knowledge workers being more at risk. I heard the Singapore president talk a couple of weeks ago about it being coders and programmers that are perhaps more at risk, and, and in Singapore they have less of those, but in other emerging markets like India, perhaps the Philippines, perhaps yeah. Vietnam may be more exposed to, to that impact. On the other hand, you've got you know, perhaps the more optimistic view that you know clearly we do need to respect the lessons of prior industrial revolutions, and, and in each of those cases there was displacement of a lot of jobs, but creation of other new ones. But even that is disruptive in the way that it plays out. And and I suspect that the people that are displaced are not necessarily the ones who will be well-equipped and well-skilled for the kinds of jobs that might emerge, and that we may have a heavy displacement of 40 and 50-year-old workers who really need to be working for another 20 years to fund their retirement, whereas it may be the digital native teenagers that are better equipped for the new opportunities. So I, I see quite a range of Scenarios there, but but all of them are quite disruptive for in terms of the impact of the labour force, and in particular for the impact for existing mature age workers who whose skill set may be increasingly obsolete. Really interested just to to prompt you and engage your your thoughts across those scenarios or, or others that I'm missing, or or how you think of that that uh, impact of AI for the labour force. And that gives us a nice opportunity to kind
1: of pick up a point that we skimmed over on the, the last question about we we teach folks that we think change is slower than most of us think now that is in contrast i think to the vast majority of futurists or google tell you that things are changing so fast we can barely keep up i think however if as we say if you do your foresight homework if you scan which means you look for signals of change And whatever, whether you're in banking, whether you're in healthcare, whatever you're in, if you do your homework and you look for the emerging signals of change, and we have methods for that, what you find out is you can see change in its early phases and literally watch it mature from early phase to to the next phase until finally it, it bursts into the mainstream. Now AI is a good example because I've been around for a thirty-ish years now, and we've been talking about AI is coming for a thirty-ish years now. <laughs> and there are several there are several uh, concepts like now it doesn't mean it's been the same. The notion of what AI is, the notion of what it could do, has changed, but the basic concept has been around for a long time. So if you've been doing your homework and you've been watching this and paying attention and seeing it coming to me, it's like, oh, will it ever get here? Right? It's just—it seems like it's taken forever. And that, in case after case after case, we see that same thing. That actually, you when again when you when you look, you spot it early, and then that now the only advantage to spotting it early is if you're willing to take some strategic action as a result. And now, and unfortunately, one of the reasons we're in a semi, you know, screaming crisis about AI right now is we have, we've waited. <laughs> so we knew this moment was coming, for goodness sakes. We knew that something like chat GTP was coming. We knew it. We knew it. We've known it for a long time. And that said, you know, we have an opportunity to say, how are we going to do this? Uh, rather than reacting to something that's already happened, let's anticipate and be ready, and say, "All right, what? How? Did you, now we? There's still time. And in this project that I mentioned with the local government, we say, you know, what? What do you want to be in 30 years? What kind of a world do you want? A world where AI is making decisions for you? I mean, and and here's what that might look like. How does that feel? Oh, well, some people say, "Well, that's fine. You know, let them do that." <laughs> um, you may have a world where you know that tries to reject AI. I mean, that's possible, a little difficult to imagine, but you could imagine people, we say, going off the grid. I mean, you could imagine that kind of a world. Um, You could imagine, I think, the happy world that we're trying to kind of push, uh, we might kind of nudge folks towards is a world where we've developed an AI strategy in tandem with a people strategy and tried to evolve the two things together. And not make it a choice. Not make it an either-or utopia dystopia. And just say, how do we be smart about this? How do we let AI do the things AI is good at, and let people do the things that people are good at, and figure out how how to put those two things together? It can be done.
0: You know whether there's a, a much uh, evidence of it actually happening at the moment, but you know I think that's the uh, the right vision that you're you're setting out there. You know, I mentioned in the introduction that you're uh, you're an author of several books, but I want to talk about your upcoming one. Um, imagining after capitalism. And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about that and and also perhaps what led you to research and write this one.
1: Absolutely. So one of the first, when I mentioned I had that epiphany about, oh, that's it, I've stumbled upon foresight. I think the second book I read was called Images of the Future, where the author had talked about, um, this was back in the 1990s, that he felt like society had lost its ability, global society, not just the U.S., global society kind of lost its ability to Develop motivating or inspirational guiding images of the future. And he went, did did historical research. He said, Oh, you know, the great civilizations of the past were typically united around a common guiding image. And he said, I feel like that that's missing. If you think about where we, so that always stuck with me, right? You know, and one of the things I try to do as a future, so I always like to have at least one project that's just a fun, handy project. <laughs> you know, you got all your client work that you have to do, right? So I want to have, always have at least one thing that's my, all right. So after, I said, you know what? Here we are 30 years later when I first, you know, from when I had first entered the field, and I still don't see any images out there that I feel like, Wow. I see a lot of negative ones out there. I see a lot of gloom. I mean, we have whole genres of a post-apocalypse and zombies, and oh my goodness, right? All the images of the future right now are terrible. And you know, people, I—it's—it's—it's uh, it's, it, it's been a, a noticeable shift uh, in the last ten or so years towards this negative future stuff. I'm like, i like, we got to get in there. As a futurist, it's our responsibility, I think, to get in there and say, "All right, well, what could it look like?" And so that's essentially what the after-capitalist is saying, all right, what, you know, in that capitalism, because it's the current system, and I have no axe to grind against capitalism per se, you just said, you know, what is, it's the current system, what might be something different? And what are some images of what that difference could be? So that's essentially why and what.
0: And maybe if we can continue this, so, you know, I, I think you've, you've highlighted some notions when, you know, I've heard you talk about the book and, and the, and the concept of after-capitalism and, and what you posted online. And a lot of what you've described is, I think, quite quite commonly uh, considered in in more futurist circles. As I immerse myself more in listening to futurist podcasts, I hear a lot about this this same notion. But it's not a theme that tends to come through in in other circles. It certainly, doesn't come through so much in economist discussions. And I was wondering if you can perhaps help us understand, perhaps why futurists are thinking about what comes after capitalism, and, and others right. such as economists don't see it or, or are not thinking that way.
1: Yeah, so we we have it goes right back to our sort of core methodology or our core rationale for looking at the future. And so and, and maybe the first question, what is a future? all right. So we divide the future into uh, very simply the we call the baseline future is the current way this the system or the topic we're studying operates. So if we're looking at banking or an economy or anything and say, all right, how does banking or how does the economy work today? And the baseline future imagines that the current system will continue more or less intact, and but eventually, at some point, something, some changes come along and, and disrupt that system, and we end up in a new one. So that economists, and I'm not picking on economists, because most economists and most professionals who aren't futurists and who aren't trained to think about the disruption and what happens after the disruption, spend their time on that baseline future today. Extrapolated forward, so when you spend you spend all of your time in that current system, and it's good that we have people to do that. <laughs> it's not us. I say our job is say, you know, great. Now we'll we'll let the economists take care of that piece. But what happens? What might first of all, what might come in and disrupt that system? What are those disruptive forces? And then two, what does it look like on the other side? So it's really we're just looking at the same system, so to speak. We're just looking at it in different points of time. And a different you know with, with a different emphasis and like i tell my students you know we can we can help map out a baseline future where we know how to do it but mm, you don't really need a futurist for that that's not the skill set that's not the value we bring the value we bring is seeing in those things and you can imagine for most bottom line clients in a bottom line world most of the emphasis is on you know what's going to happen next quarter well that's not futurist right so you know we we understand that we're aware of it. We we've taken the bargain. We know that we are looking at points in time that most people would think is too far ahead, but we believe well, it's not right. That if we don't if we don't think about where we're going, my favorite quote: "If you don't know where you're going,
0: you might end up somewhere else." Very true. Can I perhaps sort of weave in a couple of of thoughts around some you know perhaps contradictory or competing forces at play here, and and so you know I think some of those on the. The futurist and and after capitalism bent. We'll talk about tech led abundance and, and we've heard a lot about the tech accelerationists that have been in the media in the wake of the the open open AI controversies recently and this notion of tech bringing abundance and and things like you know potentially you know new energy sources helping to helping to overcome those challenges perhaps helping to make desalination cheaper what adv- advances in AI etc then on the other hand i suppose if i look at it from a more economist viewpoint i think the majority of our consumers and citizens probably spend the biggest chunk of their income on housing and and housing is a, a i guess a, a notion that's not always just a pure commodity and you know if we are to have abundance and everybody's going to have a place well you know i'd like mine by the beach for instance so i recognize i'm going to need a, an additional income stream in order to to have that so i kind of see those as being a couple of you know, s- strong notions that different people in their own fields perhaps gravitate to. And, you know, it's an interesting one to think through how those might collide. There is a whole lot of support. You know, studying technology
1: is sexy. Um, there's a whole university, the Singularity University, that kind of, it's kind of a, not really a university per se, but close. And, you know, they study just the future of technology and people are, you know, jumping in there. Um, and this it, is exciting, right? It's new stuff. I think in the future space, we we share a lot of that enthusiasm, but we would bring we would kind of sprinkle in a measure of caution and in, in the sense of what can happen if we get overly enamored if we get overly enamored with technology. We forget about the role of people, of regulators, governments, um, the in- impact on the environment. Uh, the economics, the price, how does it, can we afford this? So uh, you'll remember from the course we went through, we talk about what we call the steep factors, which is social, technological, economic, environmental, political. And it's basically saying, like, what are all the, con- the what's the context around that technology look like? And again, remember I mentioned that AI has been around forever. Well, we can, th- we can look at all kinds of virtual reality. We can look at all kinds of examples of technology. And a lot of times the, problem with the technology isn't the technology itself it's the it's acceptance or it, whether it fits or not into the you know the larger socio-economic political context so supporters of technology will tend to just emphasize how cool the technology is and a lot of it's freaking cool but if you don't think about those other factors you know that's usually what does it in right it just it it will
0: fail some of those tests and you know a few years later. It's just kind of quietly faded away. A great quote I keep coming back to, and I'll probably come back to this way too often and, and cite it way too often, but I remember hearing Harvard professor Megan Green speaking one year at, at Risk Minds about how historically every major technology innovation has taken a long, long time to show up in productivity data. And she cited the example of the PC as having taken 25 years to have any impact at all on productivity data. And, and much as... I think some of these tech adoption curves have been been shortening in more recent times. And John Ehrlichman at Bloomberg has uh, published a bit of data to that effect. It is still this challenge that Megan Green was talking about of the lag that it takes for humans to learn how to use the technology, for humans to learn how they optimally you know, get value from it. That's, uh, I think, what you're alluding to.
1: Yeah, Brad, I I can't, it's so fascinating to have, you know, the opportunity to do this, uh, the AI project right at this, you know, right as we speak. Because, you know, one of the things when we took the project on, like, is there anything else to say about AI that hasn't been said 8 million times, right? I mean, no, it's it's been beat to death a little bit. But, you know, but you do come back and say, you know, what are some of those messages? And and what just comes through so loud and clear is really thinking through that people, you know, how do people fit in? And it's it's not just it. Well, one of it one is how does the staff like if you're introducing AI into an organization? How do we get people trained up so they will actually use it? And there are so many examples of shiny new technologies that are not implemented, but you know, people don't know how to use it. But then, and then number two, the community itself. Now let's just think we're you know we're a couple folks here talking about the future. You know, it's something that's part of our living. You know, but the, for the average person, they have no. Rep- idea what what all this ai stuff means right when, you know so the local the typical resident has no idea what this amazing future could be and we tend to just uh, figure that they'll somehow figure it out it, and they won't right so how how does a community how do we help our communities understand here's what's coming how do we do prototypes and demos and you know kind of get people on board and i i think that actually is there is a nice role for there's a nice opportunity for whether it's futures or governance or education system to really help for people prepare for this future because it is going to be different, right? Yeah, and uh, I, totally. Yeah, we tend yeah. to neglect that role.
0: And I guess one of the things that that I'm increasingly want to think about in the the context of of us here as a bank is, you know, how do we help a lot of our customers through the transitions that they're going to face, particularly for a lot of those, you know, mid-career or, or mature age workers and, and also those with small businesses that, don't necessarily have access, and and are generally time poor, but but often don't have the access to be able to, you know, have the tools for how they need to reinvent uh, as well, and where there's probably a role for us to to lean in and help those people.
1: Well, if I can, you know, I, I want to first be very clear that I think uh, for 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 banks or whether it's public, we do a lot of work in public health, whether it's any kind of organization. That is is working in the innovation novelty space and and sees these change co- changes coming and knows it needs to bring along its customer base. That is hard work. So it's not like this is just all we need to do is launch a six week campaign and everyone's going to come jumping right. And we even as futurists, where we we would say that you know uh, our primary job is to help you know identify those futures and kind of coach some ideas about how to you know respond to it. But we keep finding that our clients are asking us, well, you know, can you give you a little more specific a little more specific? Can you help? All to the point where we're like, well, do you want us to start? Do you want us to open a bank? I mean, you know, you, so and I understand what it's coming from is it's just recognizing that change, you know, the actual change, right? Actually changing customer behavior is really, really difficult and it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort and we shouldn't neglect that aspect, right? That really is, because uh, unless you do the work there, all the great thinking doesn't matter. So anyway, it's just a, long, a short way, a long way of saying that I've noticed over the, the course of the last 30 years, just a lot more of the future's work has been on that back end of how do we actually get people to respond and do it? Yeah, we can't just
0: assume it. it yeah. is, and it is, is it's a it's a difficult challenge. So, so maybe... With that that vein, yeah, you know, I'd like to to perhaps conclude by bringing it, you know, further to to our industry here at NAB and around financial services. And you know, it is interesting to contemplate what the future of financial services could look like in in such a world. You know, I know that a number of futurists, you know, Brett King is one who talks about whether it's a universal basic income or perhaps a generous basic income, and that's a concept that, you know, I don't think has been. Widely accepted in the mainstream until recently, where you know I noticed it started to enter some of the debate amongst U.S. presidential candidates, for instance. And I go back a little bit to I remember Magnus Augustin, who's the uh, the chief risk officer at Danske Bank in the Nordics. He called out to me several years ago the the prospect that we could see a future UBI world, and one in which there is the risk that that perhaps banks and insurers only serve the people who have some sort of additional income stream over and above a ubi and that for all of the great efforts that we've been making around promoting financial inclusion we could actually unwittingly drag ourselves more to a world of, of financial exclusion so I'm, I'm you know perhaps wanting to to test that that line of thinking with you and you know i see that that perhaps as a bank you know we're going to need to work harder in terms of where we find our niche for how we support our Community and economy through some of these sort of transitions that are potentially coming.
1: Well, I certainly agree with uh, working hard to find the niche because I do think there is. Yeah, you know, there is. This is this world, and you know, one of the reasons I I want to be talking about a twenty year future is like is this twenty years to prepare, right? So we don't have an excuse, and to start thinking through what would that world look like, right? And literally playing with the scenario of a UBI world and saying, you know, what does you know what is the role of banking in that world? So that's. Those are the kind of rehearsing for the future exercises that we want to go through now. To me, when I think of banking or financial services in the future, um, imagine a, a total post-work world in the sense that we don't have formal jobs anymore and there is some sort of a UBI mechanism. Uh, how do we allocate, reason? how do we decide who gets what? Now, whether that's money per se, or there is some massive global distribution mechanism to find out who gets what or to help allocate who gets what now that to me that could be banking where that could be you know that that sort of that need is still here now whether it's through money or whether it's through savings accounts and all that kind of you know, like that that that's the mechanism we use right now we have a job we get some money we get access to resources. If we don't get money we don't have a job we still need to figure out how to get access to resources and that is a huge global problem and you know, so it's just it i think it's a reframing of what you know what the service is but the need the need is still there so i can absolutely see a niche but you have got to find it <laughs> to your point
0: andy thank you that's been a, a fascinating bit of future casting and and you know i think a great way to sort of put out there the items that we need to be starting to think through and contemplate and i'm going to have a crack at just trying to summarise a few things that that I thought really resonated. I'll, I'll start where I'll come back and finish on the point that that change is slower than you think. And I thought it was an important notion you made there that, that you know, that's not always universally spruced and that there are perhaps some other accelerationists or the like that perhaps are, are talking on a more aggressive timeline. But the reality of what has been shown is that change is slower than you think. You made the point that that perhaps illustrating that that the basic concept of AI has been talked about and and been seen coming for 30 years but the notion of what it actually is is what's really changed and what we've seen in the the last you know 12 or 15 months as it's generated such attention in particular. You made the point that there's really only a benefit of actually spotting a trend early if you're actually going to take action to prepare for it and manage it. And I think that's a great one to underscore and to to keep coming back to. You made the point that that we all and I guess, you know, particularly those of us who are passionate in this field, that we have a responsibility to map out a positive vision for the future, not least because there's no shortage of negative visions abounding that are so common and popular at the moment, but the responsibility to step forward with a positive vision. I love the point you made that that, you know, we we run the risk of getting overly enamored with technology. And when doing so, we risk forgetting about people, about the impact on the environment, some of those wider community and human settings. And lastly, to come back and reiterate your point that change is slower than you think, that if change is slow and if it takes 20 years, well, as you called it out, then that gives you 20 years to prepare. Use that time wisely, I think would be the the conclusion from that. So Andy, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to, to hear your thoughts. Thanks for being with us on NAB Digital Next. Well, thanks for having me. I can't believe it went so fast. It was a lot of fun. Absolutely. And we've got more to come on NAB Digital Next. We're going to speak with Tim Renew of Banks, an innovative global payments network that NAB is partnering with. So thanks for listening and stay tuned to join us again soon.